Our Bible reading this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 5, from verse 17 to 26. And uh, in the church Bible, you can find it on page 1037. 1037. I read. Jesus forgive thee and heals a paralyzed one. One day Jesus was teaching, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal those who were ill. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the ties into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teacher of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sin but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home, praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story. And we thank you for your salvation that is revealed through this passage. Amen. Amen. Who is Jesus? And what is the most important fact about Jesus? If you could state one fact about Jesus that made him who he was, what would it be? Most of the world would probably say something like, um, he was the leader of Christianity, he was a good man, he was a gifted teacher. And those are true of Jesus, but they're by no means the most important thing about him. He is much more than a good man, a gifted teacher. In some churches today, it's become quite popular to think of Christ as sort of a social activist, as a political revolutionary. He is uh, presented as a man who went about righting wrongs, feeding the hungry, healing the sick, uplifting the depressed. All of this he did against the customs of the day. His actions angered the political and religious ruling class. 
And this is true of Jesus also. But again, it's not even close to the most important thing about Jesus. Some focus on his miracles, some on his parables, some on the prophetic teachings, all of which things are important. But again, none of them are the most important thing. Maybe we would say that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the saviour. Jesus gives eternal life to those who believe in him. Now, I would agree that this is perhaps the most important thing that Jesus does do. He saves people from the sins. He gives eternal life to people who believe in him. What could be more important than that? But these are things that Jesus does. And the initial question is, what is the most important thing about who Jesus is? One of my favourite authors, C.S. Lewis, uh, says the most important thing about Jesus, very simply, is he is God. And that, I feel, is right. Those of you who have read Mere Christianity or who have uh, done the Youth Alpha course uh, may be uh, reminded of the section in Lewis's book where he refutes the idea that Jesus is just a good man or just a good teacher. He says if Jesus, sorry, he says if that was all Jesus was, then he's not a good man or a good teacher. If Jesus was just human, the claims Jesus made about himself would have made him a liar or a lunatic. He must be God or he's the biggest liar, the greatest con man, madman, most successful uh, con artist in history. Jesus cannot be just a good man. He cannot be just a preacher, a teacher, a revolutionary. He cannot be just a healer or a prophet. He has to be God, or in fact, he is none of these things. This is what Luke 5, 17 to 26 shows us. In the midst of this amazing, chaotic and miraculous scene, Jesus, for the first time in his ministry, claims to be God. And if we look at the setting, the the parallel account in Mark 2 tells that there were not just Pharisees and teachers of the law present, but there was a large crowd of people who had gathered to hear Jesus teach the word of God. But along with this large crowd of people, there came the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, from every town in Galilee, Judea and Jerusalem, we're told. Word of Christ's ministry, his miracles, had spread and the religious ruling class had heard rumours about his teachings and the way the crowds were flocking to hear what he had to say. Now these religious leaders were coming to hear for themselves in order to determine whether they should accept and be encouraged by him or accuse and condemn him. At this point, they've all gathered not necessarily to learn from him, but to pass judgment about him. This is well before the days of sort of email and WhatsApp. There was no Pharisee network, and somehow these people all managed to be quickly reached from across the area. Jesus and who he was, word of mouth, was spreading incredibly quickly, and he was incredibly dangerous. So the Pharisees were there, and they weren't necessarily coming from a place to learn, but they were coming from a place of skepticism and judgment. It's not too dissimilar from a number of the young people that we work with at Greenwich Youth for Christ. We're not a Christian nation anymore. Young people, kids, don't blindly follow the faith of their parents. This is up for grabs. This needs proving, this needs weighing, and it needs questioning in a similar way that it did to the Pharisees. 
I'd love to go in and talk about the Pharisees a bit more in detail about who they were and where they came from and they get quite a bad rep but some of the things that they were all about and where they ended up in the place that they got to might be a problem but they were pretty decent people initially and some of the things they wanted to do weren't terrible but unfortunately they just ended up in a place where rules became more rules and so on and so forth and they ended up not even able to live up to their standards but do look into them and where they came from and what they're about. Anyway, maybe you have some of the sort of similar questions about Jesus as the Pharisees did. Who is he? What should I do with him? These are arguably the most important questions that we can answer in our lives. Do we accept him for who he is and what he said, or do we reject him? Do we believe in him and his message of eternal life, or do we trust in ourselves in our own good works, like I shared in my testimony? Maybe you're like the religious leaders trying to learn who Jesus is. At GYC, what we try to do is give young people the opportunity to make an informed decision about whether or not they should follow Jesus, about who he is, and ultimately about whether or not he is God. Luke, because he's a doctor, he's emphasising the healing ministry of Jesus, whereas in Mark 2, the parallel passage, he, he, uh, he emphasises the teaching ministry of Jesus. But we need to remember that Jesus often did both. He often taught with the word, and then he proved what he was about, with the miracles. In that time, that was ultimately how prophets showed what they were doing and what they were teaching was true. So from this sort of moment alone, the Pharisees probably had an understanding uh, that Jesus was at least a prophet and the surrounding crowd would have recognised him that as a minimum. Many of them accept him as a prophet in John 7, 40, it says. What is, what is, sorry, this is what the multitude said of him, that he was a prophet. But Jesus wants to show them that he is more than just the prophet. Before we see how Jesus does this, let's just have a quick look at one last thing from Luke 5.17. If you were trying to fit as many people into a room as possible, how would you have people? You'd probably have them quite organised, you'd probably have them standing up and so on. But if we read, we can clearly see here, it says that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees were sitting. They were taking up plenty of room. We might ask ourselves, well, why are they doing that? There's clearly crowds outside. These guys are sitting. But we need to remember, like in the custom of the day, there, the teachers, they were the ones who sat, and the students would have been the ones who stood. So the Pharisees, by sitting down, are almost making a direct challenge to Jesus. They're almost saying that we're level with you. We're here to sort of hear what you've got to say, but you're here to learn from us as well. There, they didn't come necessarily to learn. They came to sit. Although more people could fit into the house if they stood, they, they decided that they wanted to try and hold that position of authority. You can see the scene. Jesus on one side sat down trying to teach. Pharisees on the other side sort of holding their judgment, waiting to see if they can catch him out in any way, if they can see what he says is going to be blasphemous. They've got their scepticism. They've got their guard up. And young people, in a similar way, put up barriers to the things of faith. And to us as workers sometimes, there's a scepticism. We have to trust that God has a way to break into those situations in a similar way that he does in this story. We may have heard this story a number of times. It's a great sort of classic sort of Sunday school story. But you just need to, we just need to stop for a minute and just think how bizarre the scene is. At the end of Luke, uh, at the end of the chapter, it sort of says, people say, we have seen strange things today. And they really have. They're not wrong. We don't know whose house it is. It could have perhaps been a friend or it could have been another religious leader that this is all taking place in. 
whoever it is that Jesus belonged to, Jesus is taking teaching in the main room. The religious leaders are sat down with their position of authority, listening, and the house is filling up around the windows, through the doors. People had come from all over Israel to hear what Jesus had to say. There had probably been a bit of worry, probably been a bit of fear on some of the Pharisees' face. There had probably been a bit of excitement and anticipation on the faces of those who had just come to see perhaps another miracle, see what Jesus had done. By this stage, Jesus hadn't actually said anything blasphemous. He did have some dangerous teachings about the law and the grace of God that they were just getting ready to question and challenge Jesus on, his ideas, when they hear it, a bit of a disturbance outside in the crowd, the Pharisees. Guys are there with their friend. They can't get him in, can't get him close to Jesus. So what have they got to do? They've got to go up the stairs, up the stairs onto the flat roof. And there, they're faced with this opportunity. We can't, we've got to get this guy to Jesus. So it says in Luke, the, gospel, the, read, uh, the reading we had here, that the men just sort of removed some of the tiles and let him through. But uh, in Mark's gospel, it says that they did a lot more than that. It says they actually started digging through the roof. They started sort of removing the tiles and digging things up. And, you know, to do that is quite extreme, isn't it? To start vandalising somebody else's house is quite a, a, a step, I would say. You know, and here they are. They're desperate. Jesus has got to get there. Pharisees sat underneath trying to question Jesus, quite a serious moment, and then this strange sort of disturbance, and next thing, this man being lowered down through the roof, dropped perfectly at the feet of Jesus. And as I say, there are a couple of things in that that are strange, and You know, as British people, and particularly over the last couple of weeks, it's only highlighted how incredibly good we are at queuing and waiting our turn to do something. The idea that anybody can push in or jump the queue uh, is pretty much a big no-no. And think of the backlash that sort of Holly and Phil received for taking queue jump tickets to see the Queen in rest. So these guys, the friends of the man, were clearly desperate. They were willing to, you know, put up with the condemnation of others. They were willing to sort of actually go to the extreme of vandalising this house to get their friend in front of Jesus. And it's, the second point is, it's a minor one. It's made slightly in jest, but there is no mention of Jesus condemning this, is there? This vandalism, this queue jumping, all that goes on there. And we're, as long as you're bringing people to Jesus, does that make it, does that make it okay to do these sorts of things? It's not the theme of the story, and it's not important enough a detail of the writer to include, but it doesn't mean uh, that anything was said, or the men didn't have to put the house back to rights afterwards. But I do often think of the homeowner in the story. And I'm not advocating for criminal damage, and there's plenty written about obeying the law of the land, but it does highlight the dangers if we take verses out of isolation and without a wider context. Young people from outside the church can often quote verses and often know certain parts of scripture that out of context can be quite damaging, can be quite dangerous, and it's so important that we can provide them with a much more rounded and holistic sort of understanding of the gospel and the message and the narrative of God and his love. So yeah, don't vandalise people's stuff, even if it means bringing people to Jesus, I would suggest, but, you know, there might be exceptions to the rule. Next thing it goes on to say is it says that when he saw their faith, the man said, uh, your sins are, sorry, when he said, he said to the man, your sins are forgiven. And the idea of the word there is quite strange. It's not the faith of the paralysed man that Jesus saw, but the faith of the men who brought him there. 
We also we assume that the paralyzed man had faith, but the, the text doesn't actually say it. It just says that Jesus saw their faith. What does this mean for us? I guess it means that you and I can help to save our friends and neighbours and relatives. Ultimately, of course, it is them who must place their own faith in Jesus. They must be, uh, they're the ones who have to make a decision. They may be paralysed by sin. They may overcome it with world. They may be overcome with burdens. They may be pressed down with worry and doubt. But we can go to say and say, I know somebody who can heal you. I know somebody who can set you free. I know somebody who can give you joy. Let's not grow tired in bringing people to the feet of Jesus, our loved ones, our neighbours, our friends, our family. And that's so much easier to say than it is to do. I don't have children, and I can only imagine the heartache of wanting to see your children saved, wanting to see your children in a relationship with God, and the idea that we shouldn't and couldn't grow weary of bringing those people to Jesus' feet. That's why at GYC we set up halls, we move things around, we run groups and activities. So ultimately, hopefully, we can see young people brought to the feet of Jesus. Most people don't like to go to a place where they don't really know anybody. And this is especially true of non-Christians and especially true of them in trying to find a place in church. That's why Youth for Christ always works in partnership with local churches so young people can build relationships with people who are part of the church which they might be coming to, might be coming into. And it's true here of this situation. Sometimes it's easier to bring people to than it is to invite. And this is clearly what happened here. These people have said... I mean, maybe it's slightly tongue-in-cheek because the paralysed man is not necessarily going to be able to get him there himself. But they're saying, we're going to take him there. Who is it we need to take? Who is it we need to suggest? And who is it we need to bring to Jesus? This man is paralysed and and his friends bring him. They realised their paralysed friend needed Jesus and they were willing to do anything to get him there, even jump a queue and vandalise the house. They believed that that their faith could heal their friend through Jesus. And so they go to great lengths to make sure their paralysed friend is at Jesus' feet. How incredible this is in putting others ahead of ourselves. Looking out for those less fortunate than us. It's really countercultural, and it's uh, not the given thing. People who, do incredible th- uh, people who are willing to do that really do stand out. I was reflecting this week on the uh, stories of two different footballers who you might have seen in the news. Kylian Mbappe at Paris Saint-Germain paid a million pounds a week to play for that team because things haven't quite gone his way, because they haven't signed a defender, they're not playing in a style that he wants, all of a sudden this guy is looking to move on. Guy wins the lottery every month. He's living people's dreams, but he's not happy about what his situation is. It's all about him and what he can do and the things aren't right for him. Whereas you look to another footballer, Sadio Mane, Senegalese player, used to play for Liverpool. He was seen with a cracked mobile phone and they're like, for goodness sake, why, you, why don't you just buy a new mobile phone? You can afford that. And of course he can. But what he points to, and he, uh, people look at, is an interview that he gave previously, where he says, why would I want 10 Ferraris, 20 diamond watches and a plane? What would that do for the world? I starved, I worked in fields, I played barefoot and didn't go to school. Now I can help people. I prefer to build schools and a stadium, give people in need food and clothing. He goes on to say he doesn't need to display his wealth. I prefer that people receive a little bit of what the world has given to me. What an incredible difference of two people. And I guess the challenge is, is what role models and what people are we putting our uh, children, young people in front of? 
Who are we, you know, sort of guiding them towards? Who are we pointing them to? This is what the world shows them. Let's make sure they're seeing the best of the world. Now, we can assume in the story that the people brought Jesus, uh, brought their friend to Jesus to be healed. But what then Jesus does is different. He says to them, man, your sins are forgiven. I can guarantee you this is not really what anybody expected to hear. Probably not what anybody almost even wanted to hear. The men on the roof were probably a bit disappointed. They brought this man to Jesus for a healing, not to have his sins forgiven. The man, paralysed man, probably felt a bit gutted too. He wanted to be healed, not to have his sins forgiven. What Jesus knew what they had come for, but he knew what was more important. He knew the spiritual healing was more important than the physical healing. A lot of people come to Jesus for things they think are important. Help with their self-worth, help with their finances, with their relationships. They want God to give them direction in their life. And there's nothing wrong with these things. Of course there isn't. But Jesus knows there is something more important than any of these. Though we all want a variety of things from God, Jesus knows what we really need is the forgiveness of our sins. For me, this is the key and really important point, and it's what we're looking at. For someone who's been a Christian for some time, it's easy occasionally to lose the importance of the forgiveness of our sins and our salvation. Are we at times disappointed that that's all we get? Bizarre, isn't it, that we can be made right in God's eyes through the death of Jesus' his son, and almost at times we're asking ourselves, I didn't really come here for salvation, I came here to walk. Let's never get tired of reminding ourselves of the miracle that is there, the greatest miracle. Tim Keller writes, the gospel is this, we're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we could ever dare hope. Of course, people were shocked by what Jesus said here, the Pharisees especially. Many of them gasped and you can finally, you know, sort of see they got the answer that they were looking for. They caught Jesus out, but they didn't really expect him to give them this answer so clearly. He has plainly told them in their minds that he's a blasphemer. He's claimed to be God. This is the sentence they pronounce upon him in Luke 5.21. Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? The Pharisees correctly understood the claims that Jesus was making. They came to find out who he was and he'd clearly given them their answer. By forgiving the man's sins, Jesus was saying, I am God. And so the scribes, the Pharisees, who condemned Jesus as a blasphemer, they were correct in saying that only God can forgive sins, and his statement in that moment for them was blasphemy. But imagine what a shock it would be if someone comes to steal your car, and when the culprits are caught, I went to them and I said, don't worry, I forgive you for stealing his car. It's not really your place to forgive, is it? But this is what Jesus was doing. He was forgiving the sins on behalf of God. And this, to them, was totally baffling. And this is what the Pharisees say here. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're aware of Psalm 103, which teaches that it's only God who forgives sins. They're thinking, Jesus is speaking blasphemy. We're caught him. He's claiming to be God. And this is the sentence they... uh, they say they, they pronounce upon him. And then we look at Jesus' response in verses 22 to 24. See, anyone can claim to forgive sins. Anyone can say your sins are forgiven. And it's impossible to really, from our human perspective, to know if they are forgiven or not. Forgiveness of sins is invisible. 
So Jesus sets out to prove that he has the authority to forgive sins. He sets out to prove that he is God, to show them that he has the power on earth to forgive sins. He then goes on to tell the paralyzed man to get up and to walk, take his mat and to go home. You see, if Jesus had truly blasphemed God, God would not perform a miracle through him. If Jesus had commanded a healing and the healing did not happen, everybody would have known that he was a fraud or an imposter, a false teacher. But if Jesus was truly who he said he was, then this miracle would happen. And Jesus, in some way, would prove that he is God, come in flesh. And of course, we see that the paralyzed man is healed The healing proved to us, reading it now, the identity of Jesus. He's not just a man. He is, he's, he's not just a teacher. He's not just a prophet. He is God come in flesh. He has the authority to forgive sins, and he proves it by healing a paralyzed man. And now the man with feeling in his arms and legs and fingers is going home glorifying God. How could he not glorify God after that had happened to him? Not only was he freed from, his, from being paralyzed, but he was also freed from a greater burden of sin. Paralysis had kept him from moving, but the sin had chained him to death. Now he was free from both. And we look at the response from the crowds in Luke 5.26. Look what they said about this event. You know, they're saying we have seen strange things here today. There's always mixed responses to Christ's teachings and miracles, and this time is no different. Everyone is amazed and is glorifying God, but at the same time, there is sort of an element of fear and sort of a, a... you know, strange things have happened here. The truth is they don't, I'd imagine, almost know quite how to react. But you would think at the same time, this moment, this scene, potentially has the power to undo the entire understanding of what the Pharisees believe. They've, they've seen a man who claims to be God offer to forgive somebody's sins, and then they've seen a paralysed man walk. It's kind of, you, you think to yourself, what more do they need to see? These guys can go back to their towns, their villages, and they can, you know, they can actually, we can, we can change the face of, of the Jewish understanding of our religion here. We've seen it with our very own eyes. And it's often like that in some of our discussions and conversations we have with young people. Perhaps you get into debates online occasionally or really sort of fervent arguments you have with people, and it seems very obvious. It's, you've literally seen it in black or white, or you're spelling it out to people, and still that there's a misunderstanding. Still, people don't see it. Still, they need to see more. They want to hear more. It's not enough. And I suppose one of the things is, is sometimes we can get into that tendency to try and argue our point to the nth degree, when ultimately, sometimes we have to say, you know what, it's okay. We're going to have to disagree on that. Jesus himself, with miracles and his own words, couldn't convince the Pharisees. I think it's okay for some of us occasionally to realise that we're not going to be able to convince everyone. I mean, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law eventually conclude that Jesus is not God, but is instead using the power of the devil to perform some of these miracles. Some of the people believe in Jesus for eternal life. Some of them follow him around for a while, seeking more healings and miracles and to sort of witness what he's about. Some of them turn on Jesus and side with the religious rulers. But what about the healed man? Every time people saw him walking around the town, a miracle right in front of them, Why was the entire village and town there not instantly saved by that witness alone? And I guess because we have to answer the question, what is our response to Jesus? We all have to make an individual response ourselves. We might have seen things, we might have been told things, we might have been led to Jesus, but it's down to us. Who do you say that he is?
Is he God come in flesh? Or is he just some man with good morals and teachings? Who tricked people with miracles and led them in a way that built his ego? Or if we believe that he is God and we believe that he has the power to give eternal life, have we trusted in him alone for the forgiveness of our sins and for that? There's no other way to have your sins forgiven other than through Jesus, Christians believe. The most important thing about who Jesus was is that he was God and that he came to save. So as we finish, let's just consider the two points or two questions that I feel are key in this message. One, let's never grow weary in bringing others to the feet of Jesus. Let's take inspiration from the four friends who took their friend and brought him in front of Jesus. And secondly, let's never become complacent of the miracle that is salvation through Christ Jesus and the forgiveness of our sins. There might be other things in our lives that we want God to break into. There might be other things where we need Jesus to change something or do something. And it might or might not feel that it works out the way we want it to. But let's never forget or never forget to remind ourselves that we've already, each of us, had access to or received the miracle that is salvation through Jesus. Amen.